and welcome to episode 6 of More Queer Nymphs. Firstly, an apology. This episode should have been out two weeks ago, but I've had a family funeral, closely followed by moving house, and it just left too little of me to be able to manage that. However, here we are, I'm sorry, but we're up and running again, with today's episode exploring sirens and nereids. Well, you might well wonder why I want to treat these two, frankly, quite extensive mythologies in one measly episode. I'm sure they will both recur in the future, but this is the link. The power of allure, and in particular, song. In just a few days' time, my second novel, Nereid Song, will be available to buy on Amazon. Sorry, shameless plug. It's a retelling of the myth of Procne and Philomela. And when I was writing it, I became fascinated with the idea that the Nereids, like the Sirens, are said in some myths to have been able to lure men with their voices. We see here something of a reversal of one of our most common themes, women who unwittingly and unwillingly attract the attentions of men. Now, of course, it's not altogether a positive idea of female empowerment, coloured as it is by hints of monstrosity, perversion of the so-called feminine, and another perspective on consent, or lack thereof. As ever, our patriarchal mythological narratives can only interpret women's sexual autonomy in one way. However, first to the myths themselves. I'll start with the sirens, whose name is yet used to describe a temptingly beautiful woman or an alluring singer. Sometimes they appear alone, sometimes in groups, and their origins and names are varied. One of the most appealing genealogies, to my mind, identifies them as daughters of one of the muses, extending the idea of female artistic inspiration into their identity. They are women who are empowered through their music and their words. Unsurprisingly, that attracts me to them in particular. However, they are largely viewed through the lens of posing a danger to men. They are elsewhere identified among the monsters sired by Phorcus. Though their names do vary, they deserve naming nonetheless. So sometimes we see a pair, Aglaia Omini and Thelcia Peia, and sometimes a trio, either Pesinoe, Aglaope and Thelcia Peia, or Parthenope, Legeia and Leucosia. Other variants are Aglaophonos, Thelciope, Thelcioni and Molpe, as well as the less well-known Telles and Rhydna. While later folklore has associated sirens with mermaids, as it also does with nereids, they vary in appearance in the ancient sources. We can be sure that they were hybrids, their part beast, part human woman appearance reflecting their monstrosity and unfemininity to the ancient male thinker. Their bodies are considered that of woman, with a bird body from below the waist. Whether they did or did not have wings seems to be a moot point. They were originally companions of Persephone, so they may have been given wings to help search for her, or may have lost them when they failed to. Or they may have lost their wings when they challenged the Muses to a competition in song and failed. An interesting reflection on right or wrong female singing, perhaps, which in art has been depicted with a sadomasochistic lesbian element to the punishment. However, they were instrumentalists too, with one playing the lyre on the flute and a third singing when they appear in trios. Most famously, the sirens lived on a rocky island between Circe's home of Aiaia and the home of Scylla, from where they could lure passing ships near to the rocks with their music, causing sailors to neglect their ships and wreck them, 
or to jump overboard and be killed on the rocks. There is a question here, I suppose, about consent, whether the sailors were choosing to do this, and that is something that we might consider problematic. But we also see that when Odysseus and his men, warned by Circe, managed to pass unscathed, some accounts have the sirens kill themselves in response, possibly because of the prophecy, though in others they do later take revenge by killing Odysseus' son, Telemachus. Nereids have come up in our discussions before, but I wanted to look at them alongside the sirens to see how the two mythologies might have come to overlap. The 15 Nereids are the sea nymph daughters of Nereus, distinct from the Oceanides because they inhabited the waters around Greece or the Mediterranean rather than the wider ocean, and distinct from the Naiads, who are freshwater nymphs. They were all women, although Ilion does rather brilliantly mention a son, born after all the daughters, Nereites, who was the most beautiful of them all, apparently. Like sirens, Nereids bear a strong kinship with mermaids. They're young women swimming naked in the sea, their hair is blue or green, they're elusive, surfacing in a way that sailors might spot them. And although not hybrid, by and large, with the exception of some fishtailed representations on gems in particular, they're able to change into other forms. For example, Thetis, in her ultimately unsuccessful attempts to escape from Peleus by changing shape. By and large, however, Nereids seem to be helpful to sailors, unlike the Sirens, most famously aiding the Argo passing through the wandering rocks. That said, Herodotus, among others, uh, gives us a report in which the Persians sacrificed to the Nereids to prevent a storm continuing to hinder them. That begs the question as to whether Nereids can be responsible for storms as much as for stopping them. They're certainly not against violence when they feel slighted. Poor old Andromeda's situation, tied to a rock ready to be eaten, and, maybe worse, saved by Perseus and his lustful eyes, all arises from her mother claiming that she was more beautiful than the Nereids. Nevertheless, there are patterns here where we might see the Nereids and Sirens as opposite versions of one another. Importantly, while the Nereids also have alluring voices, they simply use their powers for more positive forces than the Sirens. And not always. We have Roman accounts where shepherds are just as likely to be lured by a Nereid as a sailor is by a siren on the sea, though perhaps with less disastrous consequences. The question is often asked as to what the sirens actually seek. They may consume the bodies of the sailors who drown on their rocks, or there might also be a sadistic pleasure in simply their power to lure and kill. There is a certain sense of justice when we consider how men treat nymphs more widely. If these are men drawn lustfully towards the sirens, just as they are to the Nereids, perhaps it's a fitting metaphor for female power that these men meet death rather than sexual gratification, most often through rape. So that's to say that the sirens sing, a metaphor for their allure, their beauty, and men think that this gives them some sort of right to approach, to presumably expect sexual gratification for themselves. But instead what happens is that they are punished for that assumption. Odysseus' decision to listen to the sirens while bound to the mast certainly serves as a form of female disempowerment. Rather than these women be allowed their power and their singing, and men resist the urge either to jump or to jump them, Odysseus has to enjoy this metaphor for sexual beauty without it being on the siren's terms. I don't know if it's just me who jumps to the message that too many men need to hear 
it's men's behaviour, not women's, that causes women to suffer rape, abuse and murder. Odysseus could have blocked his ears, metaphorically recognising that he should not succumb to an assumption that all sexualised women are his to claim by right. But rather, he listens, just to prove he can have his cake and eat it. In Nereid's song, I take these parallels between sirens and Nereids to explore how the singing of a Nereid might be a source of sexual power, liberating Nereids and women from the control of men. If the sirens are seeking justice, then there might be a milder, less deadly sort of justice in what a Nereid song would achieve. As a result, there is no song today, which now I say it seems a little bit unfitting, but there is an extract from the book. I'd be interested to hear how people respond to the premise, and if you like it, please do buy it. You'll also find Camilla, uh, my other novel, is going to be available for free to celebrate the launch of Nereid Song. So if feminist myth retelling is your thing, this is a good week for you. Look out for both of those. In the meantime, more queer nymphs will be back engaging on Twitter after this break. And you can also find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at More Queer Nymphs. I'm in all those places too, as Claire M. Coombe. So do say hi. I'll be back in two weeks, I promise talking about something a little bit different, mythology in the Chronicles of Narnia. Until the next time, stay safe and enjoy this extract from Nereid's song. Sitting on a flat rock, out of sight from any casual observers, Philomela closed her eyes and tried to listen to the voice inside her. She wondered whether this was what it had felt like to learn to walk, or to talk the first time, as an infant finding her way to doing these things that would somehow incite her, but not yet manifest. She could sense the power, like a glittering silver thread. If she could only grasp its end, she knew she could draw it out. She closed her eyes, focusing every sense on her curious task. Philomela's mouth dropped open a little, and her lower lip quivered as she delved into her soul, her hands lay flat, palms upwards on her lap. In her ears rang the gentle lilt of the breeze and the chirrup of birds above. She took deep breaths, feeling her chest rise and fall. With every inhalation, the sounds drifted further and further away, until they could have been in another world. The beating of her heart grew louder, the timbre of a drum pounding deep within. Then, alongside the pulsing beat, she heard it, something else so sweet as to be sickly like viscous honey. The fingers of her mind reached tentatively down, groping inside her own body with their tender touch. She could see it now, as well as hear it, that slender thread, pulsing, glimmering, the tiny end flickering just in reach. She sensed the slick, syrupy music coating its mystical surface as it issued its first hints of the song she knew was her own. She focused her mind, letting everything else pass away. The thread twitched, and she grasped hold of it. The silver turned to vivid crimson, blood red. As though it were a bit between her teeth, she held it secure and opened her eyes.